I want to ask a question. How many of you and men, you're not going to raise your hand, I know, but, but, be, but be truthful. I have daughters, so I know. How many of you have some, have some favorite fairy tales, uh, Disney princess movies? They're most always princess movies. How, come on, raise your hand if you got them. Come on, men. If you're a real man, you'll confess. All right, now, let me ask you. What are some of your favorite fairy tales? Come just call them out. What are they? Cinderella. Cinderella. What else? Aladdin. Aladdin. Snow White. That's a good one. Shrek. <laughs> I guess that counts. What's, what's your favorite? Ariel. Okay, the Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Yeah, so here's, here's the thing about fairy tales is that there's, there's always this part in a fairy tale, if you've ever noticed, where there's somebody in the fairy tale who, who just quite honestly expresses love in such a way that defies all human logic. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. It's some kind of a... They sacrifice something that you think, why in the world would you sacrifice that? Why would you do that? Why would you go to that length? And it's kind of a love, a stubborn love, a one-way love. I'm going to give you some examples. I'll go real old school. How many of you remember Pinocchio, the story of Pinocchio? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, the story of the wooden boy and everybody, you know, the thing that we remember about Pinocchio is that when he lies, his nose grows. But that's not really the main part of Pinocchio. The main part of Pinocchio is this incredibly, um, incredibly unreasonable love that Geppetto shows for Pinocchio. Do you remember what he does? When, when Pinocchio goes away and he's, he's living a wild life, and what does Geppetto do? Geppetto doesn't stop searching for him, does he? I mean, he, he even to the point of risking his own life and putting himself in danger, he pursues Pinocchio. Uh, and, and so we, we see that and we think, wow, that's, you know, that's, that's a that's an amazing love. It, it kind of defies logic. It defies region, reason. And, and it, think of Cinderella. I mean, this prince, you know, he could have any girl in the kingdom he wants. They're praying them all to him. And he dances with this girl, and, and she runs off, and she loses a shoe. And he turns the kingdom upside down looking for a girl that wears a size 7, like there's only one girl in the whole kingdom that wears a size 7, right? So, I mean, he's searching everywhere for this girl, and you think that's unreasonable. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. You think of a story like Beauty and the Beast and, and, you know, this beast who basically holds this girl captive and he's mean and he's ugly and he's tyrannical. And yet at the end of the story, as the beast is dying, right as, you know, right as time's about to run out, what does Belle do? She, she kisses him. And you think, why do you, why would you do that? I mean, why? That doesn't make any sense. But she does, and, and, and it's every one of these cases, this sort of unreasonable, stubborn love changes the circumstance of these people, and it makes all the difference in the world. And, and we love these stories. I'll tell you, the reason these stories endure, the reason they transcend culture and time is because you and I desperately need these stories to be true. Now, now not the facts of the story, but, but, but we desperately need the story to be true, that there is that kind of love available. We need to know that there is someone out there who could possibly love us when it doesn't make any sense. We need to believe that it is possible that even when we're at our worst, even when we're unlovable, even when we've blown it, even when we've messed up, that somebody could possibly unreasonably, unrelentingly love us the way that love is showed in these stories. Uh, now, it's ironic that in these stories, the bad guy in these stories is, all, is almost always a step-parent, right? I mean, it's, my, my wife will say it's, it's usually the stepmother, you know, wicked stepmother. The irony for me personally is that my best example of unrelenting, stubborn love is my stepfather, Larry Johnson. That, I'm, seriously, I, I, I mean, it, I've never seen a stubborn love like he gave to us 
Uh, when I was 14, my sister was four, and my mom married him. He just loved us like we were his own, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't let us be loved any other way. And, and all through our lives, even as we're adults and have kids of our own, he loves us that way with a stubborn, unrelenting love. After our mom died, you know, he continued to love us, love our kids just like they were his own. Stubborn, unrelenting love. We need somebody to love us like that. We hope that somebody will love us like that. Think about this. Who is somebody who has loved you with a stubborn, unrelenting love? Think about it. When you were at your worst, who loved you like that? Uh, maybe you have trouble coming up with somebody because maybe you, you think, I don't know that anybody's ever, ever loved me like that. And I would say you're wrong. I would say you're wrong. We're going we're gonna to talk about that today, that somebody has loved you like that. But if you are fortunate enough to, to, to see and understand and remember somebody who loved you the way that we most desire to be loved, I would guarantee that you would say that person made all the difference in your life. They made a difference for you. The Bible is a story of God's unrelenting love. And we see the climax of this unrelenting love in Jesus Christ. That he would love us when we're at our worst all the way to the cross. That he would give his life for us when we were undeserving, when we were at our lowest, Jesus died for us. And then the unrelenting love didn't stop at the cross because even death couldn't keep Jesus from loving us. That three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead and overcame death and sin forevermore so that we would know God's love cannot be defeated. It never, ever fails. Even death can't keep God from loving us with this unrelenting love. And and so this story of Jesus, though, it's not just a New Testament story. Often we'll look at the story of Jesus and we'll say, well, I, I like that God. I like the God that's Jesus God. And we think the Old Testament might be this God sort of just judgment and, 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 and uh, a God who is sort of overall and maybe cruel, a little distant. But I would suggest that everything we see in Jesus was previewed in the Old Testament. That over and over again, God was pointing us towards his unrelenting love. And he did it in a pretty simple little word. The word is called chesed. All right, now, this is a fun word. You've got to get a little phlegm in your throat. We're going to say it together. Put your hand like this so you don't spit on the person in front of you. Ready? And everybody say chesed. Chesed, yes. All right, chesed. Now, he, this is a word that's in your Bible about 250 times in 241 verses. That's in the Old Testament. 250 times. Here's what the word means. Here's how the word's translated in your Bible. Steadfast love, loving kindness, or mercy, depending on which translation you use. So it's not always the same, but it's repeated over and over again. And in Hebrew, it's always the same word. It's the word hesed. Here's what it means. It means stubborn love. It means a love that does not give up. It's, it's a sticky love. Even the person who tries to get rid of it, they can't shake it off. The person may not even want it, but they can't get rid of it because it just keeps on giving. It, it, Hesed combines the idea of commitment and sacrifice. It's not some squishy uh, Hallmark card. It's something much bigger than that. It has nothing to do with emotions or feeling. It's one-way love. It's a love that says, you don't have to love me back. It's, it's not reciprocal. You can choose to reject me. You can choose to deny me. You can choose maybe even to kill me, but I will not stop loving you. It's a one-way love. It has no exit plan. It's unbalanced. It's uneven. It's inexplicable. And when people see it, they say, that doesn't make any sense. That, that doesn't make any sense. 
It's a love that doesn't, isn't built on emotions, but rather it behaves its way into emotions. It says, I may not feel this right now, but I'm going to act based on commitment until the feeling comes. It's a love that acts as a result of commitments and not a reaction to circumstances. That circumstances don't define or change this kind of love. And we see a beautiful picture of this chesed in the Old Testament in the little book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, uh, this story is just, I think, one of, our, one of our best examples of what I'm talking about. And I want to pick up today in, in verse 6, but I want to kind of bring you up to speed where we are in the story. There was this woman named Naomi, and Naomi had a, a husband and two sons, and they lived in Bethlehem. If that sounds familiar to you, there are a lot of important things happen in Bethlehem. It's where King David was born. It's also where Jesus was born. And so, so Bethlehem has a lot of significance, but it was a little town. It wasn't much of a town. And there was a famine. This was during the time of the judges. And when the famine hit, uh, this woman and her family, they left Bethlehem. And they moved to a country called Moab. And Moab was kind of a bad choice because Moab always represented the opposite of God's people and God's will. So so there was something going on here where this family didn't, uh, didn't give God the space. They didn't believe that God was going to deliver them. They, they just sort of walked away. They left it all. They went to this place. Well, they get to Moab, and sure enough, um, as, the, as, the, as the Lord would have it, the, the man died. The, the father died, leaving the woman with her two sons. And so she tried her best to raise these boys to do the right thing, but now she's living as a refugee in a foreign land. And sure enough, the boys do what the parents hoped they wouldn't do. They married foreign women. This was really sort of, if you married a non-Jew in this time frame, it was really frowned upon. It was against the law of Moses. So they married these women who worshipped other gods. Naomi had kind of lost control of her family, and now she's got these two daughters-in-law who, who, are, who are foreign to her, and, and life's not going well, and it gets worse because then her two boys die, and she's left with these two daughters-in-law. And so that's where we pick up the story in, in, verse, in verse 6. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So circumstances in Israel had changed, as they did a lot through the book of Judges, that there would be times of oppression, times of famine, uh, times of war, and, and the people of Israel would cry out to God, and God would hear their cries, and he would answer their prayers, and things would get better. And so Ruth, living in this foreign land, heard things had finally gotten better, so she decides she's going to go back uh, to, to Israel, and her two daughters-in-law are going with her. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, this kind of gives us an insight into the relationship between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. The two daughters-in-law must have had a great deal of admiration and affection for Naomi. Otherwise, why would they have been willing to leave with her? It would have been much easier to stay in their homeland where they knew the language, they knew the culture, they knew the religion. I mean, their, their families were there, but something had bound them together. And I, my guess is that despite Naomi's... Uh, Despite Naomi's disappointment in her son's decision to marry these women, these women, Naomi loved them anyway. She chesed them. She didn't 
loved them based on emotions that she naturally had, that she's so happy that her sons married these two women. She made a decision that I am going to love them anyway. And in that decision, these two young women experienced a kind of love that I guess they'd probably never experienced before. And they were drawn to that. Now think about in your own life. Think about the people that you choose to love and the people that God just puts in your path that you're expected to love. It's a lot easier to love people that you choose to love. But there are people in our lives, and, and now this is going to get uncomfortable if you're sitting next to an in-law, okay? But I'm just telling you, it was what it is. It, it, there are people that you didn't choose for them to be in your family. Actually, really, we don't choose for anybody to be in our family except maybe our spouse, right? But they're there. And, and this is probably the primary place where we learn how to hesed. Not because we chose, oh, I like that person. I like what they have to offer me. I like the way they react to me. They laugh at my jokes. They make me feel good. I'm going to love that person. Uh -uh. These are people that you had no choice, and you might not like them, and they might not like you, and your personalities are completely opposite, and she rubs you the wrong way when she says this, and he always makes you mad when he does that. But you know what? This is when you can practice chesed. This is when you say, my love for you is not based on emotions. My love for you is based on a commitment. And I'm going to choose to be committed to you. And the emotions may or may not come later. But if they do, and when they do, they are so much more powerful. Because you made the decision, not based on how you were feeling, based on your circumstances, but based on a choice of the will, a commitment to say love. That's what Naomi had done for these two girls. Now, a lot of times when we read the first words of a character, it gives us an insight into that person. And we're getting ready to hear Naomi speak for the very first time in verse 8. So these two girls are, are going with their daughter-in-law. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now, we're not sure how long the daughters-in-law had traveled with Naomi towards Bethlehem. But it's clear that both daughters-in-law left on the journey. They packed up their stuff, they rented the U-Haul, and they were headed back to Bethlehem with her. So what happened on the journey is not very clear. But somewhere along the, uh, somewhere along the way, Naomi just said, you know what, girls? You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Go back. Go back to your mama. Go back to your daddy. Now, my guess is that perhaps three women traveling alone across the desert was a challenge. Maybe they ran out of water. Maybe they didn't have enough supplies. Maybe things were getting difficult. Maybe there were threats uh, of, of uh, vandals. I don't know what it was, but somewhere Naomi said, look, go back. And then she gives them a blessing, and she blesses them with three things. She says to them, may the Lord deal kindly. We'll come back to that in just a minute. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's talking about her dead husband and her two dead sons. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. See, Naomi prayed for her girls, that these, these daughters-in-law, that they'd find rest and peace, that the grief and the sorrow would go away, that they'd be married and have hope and a future. This is what she wanted for them. Girls, I want you to have hope. I want you to have a future. You're not going to have that with me. Go home. But what she says at the beginning, when she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, that's our word. In the Hebrew Bible, that's the word hesed. May the Lord hesed you. 
May the Lord love you enough not to let go of you when you go back to your people and worshiping false gods. May the Lord be unrelenting in his love and his pursuit of you. May he chesed you the way I've tried to chesed you girls. This is, this is amazing. I mean, this is unprecedented. I, I mean, in this culture, in this day and age, if you weren't among the tribe, you were not human. If, especially if you were a woman. I mean, the, the, they had, the society placed no value on these three women. The people who would have read Ruth at the beginning would have thought, this is a mockery of our culture. This is a story about women. And yet Naomi is expressing to these girls the kind of God who loves the way we see God loving in the New Testament. Thousands of years before she could have known. May the Lord hesed you. May he not give up on you. May he pursue you wherever you go. And may you find rest and may you have a new family. And then look what happens in verse 10. And they said to her, no. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Get on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the Lord, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now this verse, this passage sounds a little odd to our ears today, to our culture. But let me tell you what Naomi is saying because it, it was something that was practiced in the Jewish culture in this day and it's called Leverite marriage. And the Leverite marriage rule that you can read in the Old Testament law basically said that if a man married a woman and the man died before the woman bore a child, then the man's next closest single relative was obligated. Didn't have a choice. Didn't matter what she looked like. He was obligated to marry that woman. And, and, and you think, well, that's really a strange custom. And I've seen my you know, sister-in-law, and I'm glad that's not the rule anymore. But let me, let, me, let me tell you, there was a very practical reason for this rule. There was a really, really simple reason. It, it, served, it served in order to be a security for widows. They, they had no social security. There was no safety net. And so one of the ways that God put into his rule to make sure that people were cared for in tragedies like this was the Leverite marriage rule. That, that the next closest single relative had to marry. But it wasn't just about the widow. It was also about the deceased. It was to ensure his legacy would continue. Because the first child that they bore would bear the name of the, of the deceased man. So that that child would get all the inheritance that was rightfully due to the man who had died. And so what Naomi is saying to her daughters-in-law is, Girls, look at me. I'm an old lady. Do you think anybody's going to marry me? And even if I got married today, and even if I could conceive a child, do you really think you'd stick around and wait till the child got old enough to marry you? I mean, by then, girls, you'd be old. I mean, what? this doesn't make any sense, girls. This is not going to work out. There isn't anybody. I don't have anything to offer you. I've got no relative close. I've got nobody who's going to love you the way you need to be loved and provide the things I want for you, which is rest and blessing. Nobody, you're not going to get that from me. So you should leave. 
Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. See, what's interesting about this story is that as, as Naomi is preparing to move on, Ruth is preparing to hang on. See, Naomi had demonstrated chesed for these girls, and Ruth had learned the lesson. And she is going to give chesed right back to Naomi. Orpah, who also loved her mother-in-law, saw the logic in what Naomi was saying. It made sense. And so she kissed her mother-in-law, and she went away. Interesting side note, okay? Just Bible trivia, you can win some, you know, impress your friends at the water cooler. So, so this, this one, Orpah. For, by the way, Oprah Winfrey's mother tried to name Oprah after her, and she got the letters juxtaposed. I mean, that's, that's true. But, but also, so Jewish rabbis and scholars say that Orpah did go back. They did go back. She did go back to Moab, and she did marry, and she did have children, and one of her sons was a really big dude, and his name was Goliath. And years later, Naomi's great-grandson, a little boy named David, would slay Goliath and be propelled into the national spotlight and ultimately become the king. And so the the Jewish scholars in the Mishnah uh, follow that story of Orpah. It's not in your Bible, but it's just an interesting story. But Naomi, Naomi tells both girls to go back. Orpah eventually does. Ruth says, I'm not going back. I am staying with you. I'm not leaving. And it's it, what, what happens in verse 14, then they lifted their voices and they cried and Orpah kissed and Ruth clung on and she said, this is what Naomi said to Ruth, see your sister-in-law has gone back to, what's that next word? Her people and to what? Her God, return after your sister-in-law. Look, Ruth, Orpah's gone. She's made the smart decision. You should go with her. Back to her people and her God. It's interesting that Naomi doesn't say your people and your God. Something happened with Ruth. There had been a change already. Ruth had, had already left her people and her God. Ruth had already made a commitment to the God of Naomi because she had seen something in Naomi. See, something was different between Orpah and Ruth. And it wasn't rooted in their decision to go with Naomi. It was rooted in something much deeper. It was rooted in faith. See, Naomi had said go back and Ruth said no because she had already committed herself to Naomi's God. And so Naomi tried one more time to tell her to leave. Seven commands that she gives. Four times she tells Ruth to go back. And then... In one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament, we hear Ruth speak for the first time. And this passage of Scripture is traditionally used in weddings, and most couples are totally unaware uh, that what they're hearing is not the words of a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, but the words of a daughter-in-law to, of all people, a mother-in-law. And it is a beautiful proclamation of hesed. It's a declaration of stubborn love. Listen to what she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death separates me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Because you can't argue with Kesed. You can't argue with it. This thought, this, this response is a careful response. It's a decision of the will, not just to follow a woman, but to follow the God that that woman demonstrated to this young girl, Ruth. See, if you look at this poem, which is what it is, if you look at this, you can see how Ruth peels back the onion of her love and her commitment. It it starts with Naomi. Naomi, I'm going to go wherever you go. I'm going to do whatever you go. But underneath that, she says, but I'm also, I'm not just committed to you, Naomi. I'm committed to your people. Your people are going to be my people. And then she gets to the core of the issue. Your God will be my God. The love didn't come from emotion. It came from a statement and a commitment of her faith in God. See, there's no temporary commitment on Ruth's part. See, she, see, hear what she said? When you die, where you die, I will die and I'll be buried. Do you know what that means? She said, you know, Naomi, you're an old lady. And we're going to go back and you're probably not going to live much longer. And you're going to die and you're going to be buried. But I want you to know this. I'm staying even then. Because, Naomi, I love you. But my love has gone deeper than that. My love is about something more than that. It's not just about you. I'm committed to your God, Naomi. Because wherever you die, I'm going to die in that place. Because I'm staying. Because that's the kind of love that I've experienced. That's the kind of love I have seen. I am never going back to those people because they're not my people anymore. I'm never going back to those gods because they're not even gods at all. And they're certainly not my God. I have made a decision I love what Paul Miller says in his book about Ruth. He says, love is not God. God is love. Now think about that for just a minute. Because so often we get those two things flipped around. Love is not God. God is love. You see, when we, when we begin to think that love is God, then we think anything that stirs up an emotion of love in us must be right and true. We can't argue with that because it's love, and love is always right. But, but what the story of Ruth shows us is that God is at the center of love because it is God who is love. It is not love that is God. There's a big difference. And if you confuse the two, your relationships that you have will always be built on the shaky sand of your emotions and your circumstances. But when your source, when the center of your life and the center of your commitment is not an emotion and not circumstance, but is God, then you will always be able to tap into the kind of hesed love that God has displayed to you. Ruth was not putting love at the center of her life. She was putting God at the center of her life. And from that center would spring all the love that Ruth would ever need. I think this story teaches us some really important things that I, 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 I'm trying to learn, and I would invite you to try, to try to wrestle with some of these things too this week. First of all, love grows out of faith. Love grows out of faith. Every time I stand up, and perform a wedding. I did one yesterday. And the couple is standing there. And we get to the part where we say the vows. I realize love is always centered in faith. That there is a young woman and a young man who by faith are standing there saying, I'm believing, I'm trusting that you're going to do what you're saying right now. 
that you're going to be faithful and you're going to love me in sickness and health, when richer or poor. It's an act of faith, isn't it? Love is always an act of faith. But love also requires a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul said it this way, love always trusts, always hopes. There's the faith part. And love is not self-seeking. Love requires sacrifice. Here's what I want you to know about love because this would radically change the relationships you're in. Because there are some relationships that you're in that need chesed. They don't need more emotion. They need choices of the will and commitment. Listen, love is always an act of faith requiring me to sacrifice what I most want for what others most need. Love always requires that. It's an act of faith because it's only by faith that you can give up what you most want in order for someone else to have what they most need. Let me show you a diagram of Ruth's Hesed love. You've got a blank diagram on the back. Don't fill it out yet. I want you to fill that out with something else. But I want you to look at this diagram of Naomi and Ruth. You've got these two characters, Naomi and Ruth, uh, who are in this relationship with each other. And Ruth is uh, obviously the daughter-in-law. Naomi is uh, the mother-in-law. And they, they've got this thing going on where they, they want what is best for the other. But in order for the other to have what is best, they've got to give up what they most need. Look at the top of the diagram here. See, what Naomi wants Ruth to have is freedom, hope, and a future. And do you know what? That's what Ruth most wants too. It's what all of us most want. But in order for Ruth to love Naomi with a chesed love, she's got to embrace loneliness in order to love her that way. And Naomi doesn't have to be lonely because Ruth's with her. But the cost for Ruth is loneliness. She has to give up her dreams of a hope and a future. This is why we resist love, because of the sacrifice that it requires from us. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. And some of you are living there now because you have determined that I can't pay those prices anymore because I've paid those kind of prices before and the person on the other end betrayed me and they failed me and they let me down. But I would suggest that's exactly the environment in which you learn how to hesed. Let me, let me show you the diagram on the back. I want you to fill this in. And maybe you won't, can't do it now, but on one side, I want you to put your name in place of Ruth. And I want you to think about the person on the other side of this diagram. Uh, maybe it's a, a particular person, a particular challenging relationship you're having. I want you to put that person, the person, maybe even it says person you love. Maybe, it's, maybe it, for you, it's the person you want to love or need to love. Maybe, maybe that's a better way to put it. I want you to put their name there. At the top, I want you to write what you most want. And at the bottom, I want you to write what, they, what you will sacrifice or what they most need. Are you willing to give up what you most want for what somebody else most needs? 
in order to display the kind of love that we're talking about? And here's, here's a secret. You can't do it. Ruth couldn't have done it on her own. The only way Ruth could have done that is by tapping into a love that was greater than her own. She tapped in to God's love that she had seen lived out in Naomi's life. You can't do it on your own. Let me show you one last diagram. It's a diagram of Jesus and you. And what we most want is hope and a future. We want life. We want abundant life. We want the hope of knowing that there's more than the grave. That's what we want. And Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life and die so that you could have it. That's Hesed love. And you don't have it in yourself to love somebody like that. And the only way you can do it is by embracing the symbol that's at the center of that circle, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow after me. Have you ever thought about this? That the kind of love that you most want, that you hope somebody could love you when you're at your worst, that kind of love God has already demonstrated to you in Jesus Christ? God has already made that love known to you through Jesus. And he's trapped by his love for you. He can't get away from you. He can't shake you because he's bound by chesed love for you. It can run in one way. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 31.3, God speaking. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Guess what that word is? Hesed. I have loved you with hesed. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. <laughs> he said, I don't have a choice. God says, I don't have a choice. Because I hesed you, then my faithfulness to you will continue beyond what logically makes sense. And then when you read in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know what that means? It means you can blow it because you already have. It means that God's not keeping score. It means that he loves you not as you should be, but he loves you as you are. He loved you when you were at your worst. And he cannot love you more when you suddenly begin to try to act and do better because he already loves you to the full extent of his love through Jesus Christ because he chesed's you. And you can run, but you can't hide because he's pursuing you with that kind of love, a love that will not let go. And if you are struggling to love other people that way, my challenge to you is to tap into the kind of love that God has for you and say, Lord, will you please let that chesed flow through me because I don't have the capacity to love people the way you've loved me. But I receive your love and it's changed me. Today, some of you find yourself in difficult relationships and situations. And you don't know what the solution is. And you've negotiated and you've, you've prayed and you've done everything. I would just challenge you, take that diagram, take the back of your bulletin this week and begin to pray. Who is it that most needs to experience chesed love? And then ask yourself this question. Will you be willing to pay the price to give up what you most want? For what they most need, that they might see God's love in you the way Ruth saw it in Naomi. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your unrelenting love. God, a love that just will not ever let us go. 
it holds on and defies logic and reason. And it redeems us and it saves us. And Father, it can change us. Father, help us to know that love for ourselves and let that knowledge change us that we would be formed into the image of Jesus that we might live by the example of Naomi and Ruth and be able to love people the way you've loved us. Father, for those who are here today who are still searching for someone to love them like that, Lord, I pray today that they would stop and recognize that you have loved them like that all along. And that, Father, they would stop and experience that Hesed love. And, Father, that we would all rejoice in knowing that you love us like we are and you're seeking to transform us that we can be like you but father none of us are there yet it's still messy we still fall short and yet you love us anyway god today may that may that change our hearts and our minds may that change our relationships may it change marriages may it change families may it change parent children relationships may it change co-worker relationships Lord, we thank you for that. And Father, we pray as we come to this time of commitment that that you'd stir our hearts. I pray for the person who's just trying to decide whether or not they're going to ask for help, whether they're going to ask to speak with somebody or pray with somebody or ask somebody to pray for them. Lord, give them the courage today to step out and and, and make that request. Father, as we give to you, Lord, we pray that our, our gifts, our offerings of our time, our talent, our treasure is an expression of, of the love you've given to us as we just seek to love you in return. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.